Willkommen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing 1776. We're waiting for the chirp, chirp, chirp of an eaglet being born. Waiting for the chirp, chirp, chirp on this humid Monday morning in this Congressional incubator. God knows the temperature's hot enough to hatch a stone, let alone an egg. We're waiting for the scratch, scratch, scratch of that tiny little fellow. Waiting for the egg to hatch on this humid Monday morning in this Congressional incubator. God knows the temperature's hot enough to hatch a stone, but will it hatch an egg? But first, how are we doing? I hope this episode of The Musical Man finds you well. I know that if you are in a in a part of America, if you are in America, we are dealing with terrible freezes in several parts of the country right now. Stay warm, stay safe, I'm thinking of you. We all are as a listenership, as a listener community. And I just want to start off with a with a nice bit of positive news here, okay? We 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 started with the, the freeze, right? Well let's warm our hearts a little bit by saying happy birthday to Patty. Oh, it's Patty's 38th birthday. Well, it's not today. No, no, no. Not as of this recording. It was Friday, February 3rd. She is 38. Now, you might wonder, why why is Patty comfortable with me sharing her age with you. You know, we don't know. We don't know Patty's last name. She's very private, and I, it's it's one of the things that I really respect about her, actually. She's not really online at all. She helps to produce... The, the, she does produce this podcast, but, you know, she's not on social media, and she she's very private in general. But the, the 38, the, the age, that number, she says, she says to me, I want you to share that. Share that so that they know she's near in her 40s and she has everything, okay? She wants you to know that she has everything. She's got a wonderful wife. She's got a go oh, a wonderful baby. Oh, a wonderful cute baby that I I am I am obsessed with their baby. The family is fantastic. Professionally, she is she is firing on all cylinders. And Benny is as well, okay? All right. Benny is younger than us, but he still has it going on. He doesn't have to get his groove back because he has his groove. But Benny's birthday, that's in the past. <laughs> oh no, I'm making Benny sad. Benny, it's true. We have to focus on Patty right now because it's Patty's birthday time. Yes, okay. So 38, happy 38 years. Here's to 38 plus times two more. As many years as you can wring out of life, okay, Patty? I have another excellent point from my husband, Chris. Regarding our last subject on the main feed, Pacific Overtures, I've extrapolated and expanded upon this a bit, but I do believe that this represents his perspective. The use of an ethnic slur within the number please, hello, a slur I will not repeat here, though you would have heard it in the episode. My apologies for not providing a warning in advance 
advance, I realize in hindsight that we should have done that, that the use of that slur does not provide meaningful insight into the characters or themes of Pacific Overtures. The character who delivers the slur is this paper doll colonizer who carries zero weight, satirically or otherwise, dramatically, you know what I'm saying. The conversation he inspires, if any, amounts to, gee, those colonizers sure were racist, am I right? If that's all you've got in the way of commentary, you do not get to jab me or anyone else in the ribs with a slur. These words do not exist in a vacuum. They are not casual, okay? They have legacies. They leave marks on the people of color who hear them. Everyone, everyone is affected by them. But, you know, it's easy for me as a white person to say, oh, I don't know if I necessarily, I don't know if in this context this word works. You know, my perspective is limited. I'm coming from the perspective, really, of my husband, Chris, who is half Japanese. And those words, those words have a lot of power, obviously, within the Japanese community. But perhaps it's not my place to question Sondheim's work or methods. Perhaps I should speak objectively about his classic musical, Pacific Overtures. That, you know, that is the best way to engage with classic art, of course, by speaking objectively about its status as classic art. Am I... <laughs> am I lampooning a tweet I recently received? At this point, it would have not been recently. It would have been weeks ago, maybe even a month or more. And I'm still thinking about it because it's in my craw. You should speak objectively about this classic musical. How dare you question Sondheim's work and or methods? Ah, speak objectively about this show I love. Oh, I love it. You better love it too, or else you're not objective. Fah. Fat, that's what I say. P.S. Remember the slur we hear in the original version of Cats, which is even more divorced from meaning because it's delivered by a damn cat in a play within the musical? It's the opera that the cats put on. They use a slur during the cat opera. Ah, bad Cinderella coming to Broadway very, very soon. It's time to share you, share you. I'm gonna share you, I'm gonna share you. Share with you the show facts regarding our latest subject, 1776. Show me the show facts. All right, let's do it. Today's subject was preceded by a trio of Broadway musicals that were also set during the American Revolutionary War. If you're not familiar with 1776, that's when it's set, okay? And it was preceded by three other American Revolutionary War musicals. Musical number one, Dearest Enemy, premiered September 18th, 1925, ah, at the Knickerbocker Theater and ran for 286 performances, featuring music by Richard Rogers and lyrics by Lorenz Hart. Well, well, well. Dearest Enemy told the story of Mary Lindley Murray, or a slice of it at least. At the behest of George Washington, Miss Murray entertained General William Howe and the forces of Great Britain while American troops raced undetected to Washington Heights. Song titles from Dearest Enemy include Old Enough to Love and Hi-Ho Lack-A-Day. Uh, can we hear a teeny tiny bit of Hi-Ho Lack-A-Day? Oh, 
Okay, I gotta say the title, Dearest Enemy, kicks more than a little bit of ass, right? That's a great title. Pretty hardcore for a show about serving tea and cake to soldiers. I gotta say that hi-ho, hi-ho, lack-a-day. That's the opening number. Doesn't exactly, doesn't exactly inspire confidence, does it? Musical number two, no offense, Rogers and Hart, no offense. Music number two, Arms and the Girl, bad title, terrible title, premiered February 2nd, 1950, and ran for 134 performances. Music by Morton Gould, lyrics by Dorothy Fields. The plot, according to DorothyFields.org, a very poorly designed website, if I may say, concerns, quote, a romance between a Hessian soldier and an independently spirited American girl, quote, Song titles from Arms and the Girl include That's What I Told Him Last Night and A Cow and a Plow and a Frow. Let's hear a little bit of that. If I had a cow and a plow and a frow, how good my life would be. All right, that's enough of that. Uh, okay, musical number three is Ben Franklin in Paris, which premiered in 1964. 215 performances at the Lundfontein Theater. Music by Mark Sandwich Jr. Lyrics by Sidney Michaels. Robert Preston. Max Sennett himself played Mr. Franklin. But enough about musicals that are not 1776. Let's talk about a musical that is 1776. 1776! The show was the 1969 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on March 16th, 1969, <laughs> nice, at the 46th Street Theater before moving to the St. James Theater in December 1970 and the Majestic Theater in April 1971. The show ran for a total of 1,217 performances, making it the 88th longest-running production in Broadway history as of this recording. For reference, Equus is number 89 with 1,209 performances, while Sleuth and Torch Song Trilogy share a tie slot with 1,222 performances. The Book of 1776 was written by Peter Stone. It is based on a conception by Sherman Edwards, which probably amounted to something like uh, what if the Founding Fathers were violently horny? That's the elevator pitch, I imagine, at least. Music and lyrics, well, 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 Sherman Edwards, there you are again, hello. Director Peter Hunt, musical director Peter Howard, two Peters. Orchestrations, Eddie Souter, choreographer, well, you know I love a musical staging by credit. You know I love it. Musical staging by Ona White. Hello again, Ona, I recognize your name. Scenic design, Joe Milsner. Lighting design, Joe Milsner. I apologize if I missed pronouncing any of these names. Sound design, none. We have no sound design. We have costume design by Patricia Zibrat. Hello again, Patricia. The original Broadway cast of 1776 was as follows. We began with William Daniels, Clifford David, Paul Hecht, Roy Poole, Howard De Silva, Emery Bass, Dwayne Bowden, Betty Buckley, Broadway debut for Betty Buckley. Congratulations, Betty, the beginning of something wonderful. William Duell, David Ford, Robert Gow, Ralston Hill, Ronald Holgate, Ken Howard, Scott Jarvis, Ronald Cross, Henry LeClaire, Edmund Lindeck, Bruce McKay, Jonathan Moore, Philip Polito, Dal Richards, Charles Rule, B.J. Slater, Virginia Vestoff, and David Vosberg. 
Tony Nods. Well, the production won Best Musical, of course, but it also won Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Ronald Holgate, and Best Direction of a Musical, Peter Hunt. The show was additionally nominated for Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Virginia Vestoff, and Best Scenic Design in a Musical, Joe Milsner. Five nominations in total, three awards when all was said and done. Where is Betty Buckley's nomination, huh? And where the hell is the nomination for William Daniels, who played John Adams in the show? Hello, William Daniels, a.k.a. Dr. Mark Craig from St. Elsewhere, Mr. Braddock from The Graduate, Mr. Feeney Feeney from Boy Meets World, Mr. Kit from Knight Rider. Prior to 1776, Daniels had worked on or appeared in a great number of Broadway shows, including Seagulls Over Sorrento, A Thousand Clowns, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Oh Dad, Poor Dad, Mama's Hung You in the Closet, and I'm Feeling So Sad. Uh, they made show titles different back then. I would like to note while we're talking about the cast here, Clifford David, who played Edward Rutledge in the original production, was replaced by David Cryer, who was himself replaced by John Cullum. Cullum went on to star in the 1972 film version of 1776, making him one of the few Broadway replacements to recreate their role for the big screen. And Howard De Silva, who plays Benjamin Franklin, was replaced by his understudy, Rex Everhart, for the purposes of the original Broadway cast album. So, when you listen to that, just know you're not listening to Howard De Silva as Benjamin Franklin, you're listening to Rex Everhart, okay? De Silva, we barely knew ya! Let's talk about the plot. We begin on May 8th, 1776, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The American Revolutionary War has recently celebrated its first anniversary, and John Adams of Massachusetts is dead set on declaring independence from Great Britain once and for all. He presents the idea to the Second Continental Congress at the Pennsylvania State House, where he is promptly told to shut the fuck up. It is too hot for this, Adams. Shut the fuck up. After corresponding with his wife, Abigail, Adams seeks counsel in Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania. Franklin advises Adams to align with a more popular member of Congress, someone who can propose the idea of independence without being told to shut the fuck up. Richard Henry Lee of Virginia is popular, more popular than Adams, at least. After speaking with his peers, Lee vows to visit Virginia and return with a resolution for independence. Weeks later, Lee presents this resolution to Congress, along with a motion for debate. Adams seconds the motion with glee. John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, a conservative and fierce British loyalist, he loves the crown, he loves Great Britain, moves to dismiss Lee's motion out of hand. Fuck you and fuck this. Despite these efforts, a vote is taken and Congress agrees to debate the issue of independence. The debate quickly devolves into a vicious confrontation between Dickinson and Adams. Fuck you. Fuck me. Fuck you. The ailing Caesar Rodney of Delaware collapses as a result of the noise and the heat, leaving George Reed to represent the state as its sole remaining delegate. Edward Rutledge of South Carolina recognizes this development as an opportunity. Like Rutledge and Dickinson, George Reed is a loyalist who would reject independence. If a vote is taken right here and now, Adams' ridiculous notion would be obliterated. 
To that end, Rutledge proposes an immediate vote on the issue of independence. Adams objects with the understanding that his head is now on the chopping block. My dear friends, we cannot vote now! The Loyalists are horrified when newly elected John Witherspoon of New Jersey arrives with orders to vote for independence. Adams immediately flips like a toasty buttermilk pancake. My dear friends, we must vote now! Even if the vote were to end in a tie, Adams has faith that Congressional President John Hancock will vote in favor of independence. Dickinson devises another gambit. If Congress is to declare independence, they should be unanimous in their decision. The question of a unanimous vote is itself put to a vote. Congress, what can you do? And that vote ends in a tie. To Adams' great dismay, Hancock breaks the tie by voting for unanimity. He fears a divided Congress would inspire the colonists to turn against each other and result in civil war. Therefore, we must have unity in Congress. Adams proposes to adjourn Congress for a period of three weeks, during which time a proper Declaration of Independence will be drafted. A vote to adjourn results in another tie. Hancock breaks the tie by voting to adjourn, as he is exhausted and in dire need of a break. Adams, Franklin, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, Robert Livingston of New York, and Thomas Jefferson of Virginia are tasked with crafting the Declaration over the next three weeks. Mr. Jefferson agrees to take on the actual writing of the document after everyone else refuses the job. To be clear, Jefferson does not want the job. He is supremely, supremely horny and would prefer to sleep with his wife back in Virginia, but he takes the job nonetheless. A week passes and the committee is perturbed to find Jefferson has made no progress. The man is frustrated and uninspired and very, very supremely horny. Who can write under these conditions? No one. With precious time running out, Adams calls on the beguiling Martha Jefferson and begs her to visit Pennsylvania. Please, have sex with your husband. She agrees to do so and manages to light a fire under her husband's bouncing fanny. As a draft of the Declaration creeps into view, Dickinson and his allies rally to defend their positions as loyalist and first-generation American conservatives. Their seedy attempt at courting John Hancock ends with a firm rebuff. Hancock cannot be bought! Fuck you! A courier arrives with a dispatch from Washington, only to find the State House is empty, save for custodian Andrew McNair and a young workman, officially cited on the Internet Broadway database as Leather Apron. That's the character's name, Leather Apron. Meow! The courier recounts his experience at the Battle of Lexington and Concord, during which he witnessed the deaths of his two best friends. Very sad moment. The initial reading of the Declaration before Congress, combined with an impressive shooting demonstration from the Continental Army, convinces Samuel Chase of Maryland to vote for independence. Ah, the tide has begun to turn. In private, Franklin, Jefferson, and Adams address the subject of America's national bird. Franklin stumps for the noble turkey, while Jefferson favors the gentle dove. But they are ultimately persuaded by Adams' assessment of the eagle. We flash forward to June 28, 1776. 
A debate is underway as to how the declaration may be altered, with Rutledge objecting to a clause that condemns slavery. He accuses the Northern delegates of hypocrisy. After all, Northerners have benefited from the labor and products of slavery as much as anyone else. The accusation results in several walkouts, and Adams falls into a depression. July 2nd, 1776. Hancock calls for an official vote on the issue of independence. Rutledge doubles down. If the slavery clause is not removed, none of the southern colonies will vote to break away from Great Britain. Jefferson removes the clause at the behest of Franklin, who believes independence must come before the abolition of slavery. We'll get to the slavery, Tommy, I swear to you. Oh, Tommy, you gotta believe me. Dickinson makes his last stand. He refuses to vote for independence, assuming the rest of the Pennsylvania delegates, including a Mr. James Wilson, will stand with him. The deciding vote falls to Mr. Wilson. He knows the eyes of history are upon him and refuses to be remembered as the man who kept America from moving forward. Wilson votes in favor of independence, thereby securing a unanimous congressional front. Dickinson leaves without signing the Declaration of Independence and calls for peace with Britain, though he resolves to join the Continental Army and fight for America if he is called upon. Adams leads Congress in a salute to Dickinson, and on the evening of July 4th, 1776, the delegates are called forth to sign the Declaration of Independence. The imposing and cacophonous ring of the Liberty Bell pulses through the Pennsylvania State House and America at large. Kong! 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 The end. For the purposes of this week's episode, I listened to the 1969 original Broadway cast album of 1776, and if I may say, just very quickly, I want to throw this in here. I am not a fan of the original promotional art for this show. Uh, it's art that we seem to be clinging to, like fucking duct tape. I'm so sick of the egg with the fucking Union Jack on it, and there's, there's the eagle popping out with the American flag in its mouth and its beak, and the eagle looks so weird and dazed and confused. Mom! Ah, it's me, America. Ah, I don't feel so good. He looks so strange. And I just think that the 1776 font, the font that they chose for that, that's striking. Let's just focus on the title. I don't know if we need any promotional art beyond that, distracting from the title. No, I don't like that bird. I don't like it. No, no, no. I also watched the 1969 Tony Awards performance of Mama Look Sharp. Here is a two-year-old comment from YouTube user Clyde Cavallari, quote, Nowadays, they'd have to cut it down to two minutes, quote, Enough already, what the fuck are you talking about? Shut up! Yeah. Uh, nowadays, they'd have to cut it down to two minutes. So what with the advertising and the no attention span? Nobody has attention span. Nobody has attention span for nothing. Nothing. Nah, kids today don't have attention span for nothing. We learned via presenter Alan King that 1776 would have been ineligible for the 1969 awards if it had opened just one day later. In fact, the first performance of 1776 began 15 hours before the nomination committee convened. Huh, talk about fucking cutting it, cutting it close, my God. Would 1776 have won Best Musical over the 1970 nominees for that award? Those shows being 
being former subject applause, Coco, future subject, and future subject Pearly. Applause, Coco, Pearly. Could any of them have beaten 1776? I doubt it. I believe that 1776 probably would have won over those shows. Why am I yelling? I listened to the 1970 original London cast album, which features Vivian Ross as Abigail Adams, Louis Fiander as John Adams, Ronald Radd as Benjamin Franklin, John Quentin as Thomas Jefferson, and Cheryl Kennedy as Martha Jefferson. That album is, uh, it's fine. It's not nearly as good as the original Broadway cast album, I'll tell you that much. Maybe because it's from fucking London. Ah, it's a, no, that's our show. I'm kidding. What if I was... Uh, they shouldn't be allowed to do it. They shouldn't be allowed to do that show. That's our show. It's a story about America. What about the 1971 Tony Awards performance of Yours, Yours, Yours? Well, I watched that. You know I did. This is one of 27 performances celebrating the previous quarter century of Tony Award winning musicals. I always get a little flummoxed when I look into this ceremony. It always bugs me because uh, they made no room at all for the latest batch of Best Musical nominees. There were no performances from Company, The Rothschilds, or The Me Nobody Knows, which I find to be ridiculous. So now, John, no, I will not. I find it to be ridiculous. Huh. Here's a five-year-old comment from YouTube user Jones 59 quote, PLEASE! All caps. We start off with PLEASE! The Abigail in this Tony clip is its originator, the wonderful Virginia Vestoff, all caps. A wonderful actress in musicals and plays who died far too young from cancer. For the record, Betty Buckley was her replacement, all caps on replacement. Quote, here's a reply to that comment from user F13 Overture, quote, they were both original Broadway cast. Virginia Vestoff played Abigail Adams and Betty Buckley played Martha Jefferson. Quote, here's a reply from user Phil Greenland. Quote, Betty Buckley was not her replacement. Betty Buckley originated Martha Jefferson. Quote, here's a reply from Susan Sokolsky. Quote, wrong. Betty Buckley was Martha Jefferson in the original Broadway cast and never played Abigail Adams. Quote, <laughs> I love how they're giving that user shit. Yeah, fuck you. Fuck you, Lysol, Liesel Jones 59. You don't know what you're fucking talking about. You goddamn dum-dum. Uh, uh, okay, so in regards to the 1972 film adaptation of 1776, uh, here's some trivia for you regarding the casting. William Daniels, Howard De Silva, Ken Howard, and Virginia Vestoff recreated their roles for the purposes of the film, Betty Buckley was replaced by Blythe Danner, whose credits include Brighton Beach Memoirs, The Prince of Tides, Tu Wong Fu, and Meet the Parents, oh, as well as a single episode of Saint Elsewhere, Knock Knock, Hello, William! Chris and I saw 1776, the movie, in May of 2019, specifically the theatrical cut, which clocks in at 148 minutes. The 148-minute theatrical cut should not be confused with the 165-minute director's cut, the 167-minute extended cut, 
or the 180-minute laser disc cut. We did not enjoy the movie, and considering the 165-minute director's cut is the only version of the movie you can rent online, we decided to skip a rewatch altogether. A stupendous decision on our part, there's no doubt about it. 165 minutes? No, 180! That hasn't even appeared on any of the fucking recent Blu-ray editions. You can't get the 180-minute version anywhere anymore, and that's probably a fucking good thing. This story, I hate to tell you this, but this story does not support 180 minutes of anyone's time. If a movie is ever re- if the movie is ever remade, someone will absolutely write a new song, right? They will. They absolutely will, if only for the sake of competing in the best original song category at the Oscars. And I don't know what that song is going to be. It's probably going to be a song for one of the women that has nothing to do with the men in their lives. I, I would hope for that, at least, because that would be a little refreshing. Just uh, some sort of perspective from a woman that has nothing to do with my husband. I love my husband. <laughs> That'd be great. I did not read the 1973 Charlton Comics comic book adaptation of the movie... <laughs> what? Which was written by Joe Gill and drawn by Tony Tallarico. I did not read this comic book, as it does not appear to be available in full online. But I have pursued, perused, I should say, a couple of pages... And it seems, uh, very boring. Pretty boring. If I was a child and I was handed that comic book, I would, uh, throw it away is what I would do. <laughs> the fact that a close-up of William Daniels and a big dialogue balloon over his head saying, I say vote, yes, vote for independency. But you can't hear it, can you? Because it's a fucking comic book. I listened to the 1997 Broadway revival cast album, which features Linda Edmond as Abigail Adams, Brent Spiner as John Adams, Pat Hingle as Benjamin Franklin, Paul Michael Valley as Thomas Jefferson, and Lauren Ward as Martha Jefferson. That was also... Ah, that was not. The other cast albums really pale in comparison to the original. You don't need... No, everybody's a little bit too sleepy or broad on the, on the 97 edition, so don't worry about that necessarily. I also watched the 1998 Tony Awards performance of Sit Down, John! Rosie O'Donnell introduces this performance. You know how I love Rosie. Oh my god! Her comedy at the Tony Awards. Is there anything I love more? Uh, she introduces this segment by saying, quote, The next nominated musical is the revival of 1776, which I thought was the story of Mr. and Mrs. Tony Randall. 17... 76. She holds for fucking laughter before 17. 76. Yeah, we fucking get it, Rosie. Thank you very much. I, I mean, actually, I had to look this up because in 1995, 75-year-old Tony Randall married 25-year-old Heather Harlan, who served as an understudy in a production of The School for Scandal that starred Mr. Randall. Their marriage was officiated by none other than Rudy Giuliani. Fucking terrifying. That skinnamarink shit. Holy shit. But again, they were married in 95, and Rosie is telling this joke in 98. Topical it ain't. Hey, everybody, remember Tony Randall's marriage? A five-month-old comment from YouTube user E. Patton. E. Patton, that's the username. Quote, 
the last legitimate version of the show to play on Broadway. That disgusting monstrosity currently playing doesn't count and never will. Quote, uh-huh. Are you okay, E. Patton? Are you having a fucking okay day, week, month, year? Just typing out this fucking shitty-ass comment. The last legitimate version of the show to play on Broadway. The disgusting monstrosity currently playing doesn't count and never will. Fuck off. Speaking of the 2022 Broadway revival of 1776, which starred Allison K. Daniel as Abigail Adams, Crystal Lucas Perry as John Adams, Petrina Murray as Benjamin Franklin, Elizabeth A. Davis as Thomas Jefferson, and Aaron LaCroix as Martha Jefferson, hey, am I to believe that production populated entirely by female trans and non-binary performers will not receive a cast album? Is that right? Has anyone heard otherwise? I feel like I miss the news for this stuff sometimes. Uh, but anyway, I want an album is the point. A touring version of the revival is ongoing, as of this recording, and will set up camp in Chicago on February 28th. Ah, but I want, I want, I want, I want a cast album if it's on... I'm sorry, I don't care how it's received, I don't care how long it, I don't, I don't know, how long it runs, whatever. If it was on Broadway, I want a cast album. It's called Preserving History. Hello, let's talk about the score for 1776. Let's begin with the opening number, Sit Down, John. By God, I have had this Congress. For ten years, King George and his Parliament have gulled, cullied, and diddled these colonies. And still this Congress refuses to grant any of my proposals on independence, even so much as the courtesy of open debate. Good God, what in the hell are they waiting for? Sit down, John. Sit down, John. For God's sake, John. Sit down. Sit down, John. Sit down, John. For God's sake, John. Sit down. Someone open up a window. Say vote yes, vote yes, vote for independence. Open up a window. I say vote yes. Sit down, John. Vote for independence. Consider yourselves fortunate that you have John Adams to abuse, for no sane man would tolerate it. John, you're born. We've heard this before. Now, for God's sake, John, sit down. I say, vote yes, no. vote yes, no. vote for independence. definitely such a thing as overdoing the opening monologue of 1776, which precedes this opening number, Sit Down, John. William Daniels' performance, which you heard, is studied and controlled from end to end. I realize we get an abbreviated version of that monologue on that track, but uh, my, my point still stands. He's less thirsty for laughs and applause than that of Brent Spiner, who led the 1997 Broadway revival. 
John Adams may have been a blustering boob of a human being, but he was a human being at the end of the day, and I need to recognize him as such. Every beat does not have to land with the force of a strike to the temple, Mr. Spiner. Allow me to focus on one particular line from John's monologue. Quote, For ten years, King George and his parliament have gulled, cullied, and diddled these colonies. Quote, Wow! Diddled! Jesus! I don't know about you, I don't know about the rest of you, but I completely forgot the word diddled was coming down the pike, and within the first four minutes of the evening, no less. The high end of the vocal arrangement throughout Sit Down, John, is a tasty sonic treat. I consistently found myself focusing on and admiring that section of the ensemble. For God's sake, John, sit down! For God's sake, John, sit down! That's it. <laughs> it's really high and loud. Ooh, loud and high. You know those are the vocals for me. For God's sake, John, sit down! If it were up to me, I would open up a window. <laughs> if we're putting it to a voting congress, I vote for window opening. Hello? Who cares about a couple of flies? It's called fly swatters. Do we not fucking have those yet? The Pennsylvania State House stinks. It fucking stinks to high heaven in here. It's filled with disembodied reflux burps and red wine blood farts. Are you fucking kidding me? Open the windows now. Oh, Abigail, Abigail, I have such a desire to knock heads together. I know, my dearest, I know. But that's because you make everything so complicated. It's all quite simple, really. Hmm? Just tell the Congress to declare independence. Then sign your name, get out of there, and hurry home to me. Our children all have dysentery. Little Tom keeps turning blue. Little Abby has the measles, and I'm coming down with flu. They say we may get smallpox. Uh, madam, what else is new? Abigail, in my last letter, I wrote you to organize the ladies to make saltpeter for gunpowder. Have you done as I asked? No, John, I have not. Why have you not? John, I'm afraid we have a more urgent problem. More urgent, madam? There's one thing every woman's missed in Massachusetts Bay. <laughs> Don't smirk at me, you egotist pay. Heed to what I say. We've gone from Framingham to Boston and we cannot find a pin. Don't you know there is a war on to the tradesman with a grin? Well, we will not make salt people until you send us pins. Pins, madam, saltpeter. Pins. Saltpeter. Pins. Saltpeter. Pins. Saltpeter. Pins. Peter. Pins. Peter. Pins. Peter. Pins. Peter. Pins. Done, madam. Done. Done, John. Hurry home, John. Oh, as soon as I'm able. Don't stop writing. It's all I have. Every day, my dearest friend. Till then. Till then. I am as I have and ever shall be.
I can't get over this one moment in Till Then. I think it falls within the number Till Then. It might, it might come earlier, I don't know. But Abigail Adams and John Adams are corresponding, or maybe they're talking in John's imagination. I'm a little I'm a little confused on that point. But Abigail Adams is, is telling John about what's going on back at home. And she says, you know, our children are, are terribly sick, John. What do you want me to do? One of them is turning blue? Death looms over us all like a fruit picker waiting for us to ripen? I welcome death? And John Adams responds with, uh huh, what else is new, babe? John, come on! She just said that one of your children is turning blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Salt Peter! The moment these two begin to sing about Salt Peter and pins, Salt Peter pins, is the moment my eyes morph into frosty moons and I turn as rigid as a wake old corpse. Virginia Vestoff and William Daniels make a lovely musical couple. Who is saying otherwise? They infuse till then with as much hot-blooded passion as they can muster, but they might as well be arguing over the agenda for the next meeting of a robotics club. Pins! Salt Peter! Get me out of here, you dorks! Miss Richard Henry Lee, Virginia is my home. My name is Richard Henry Lee, Virginia is my home. And may my horses turn to glue if I can't deliver up to you resolution on independence. For I am FFB, the first family in the sovereign colony of Virginia. Yes, the FFB, the oldest family. British burn my land if I can't deliver to your hand a resolution on independence. You see, it's clearly, clearly, and everywhere, illegally, socially, politically, financially, naturally, internally, externally, fraternally, eternally, the FFB, the first family in the sovereign colony. My wife refused my bed If I can't deliver, as I said A resolution on independence Spoken modestly, God help us He will, John, he will the Lees of Old Virginia. Now there's a damn fine number. A barrel packed with shivering firecrackers, jaunty and jubilant and unafraid to be downright silly. I envision Mr. Richard Henry Lee as Foghorn Leghorn by way of Don Bluth, an animated figure who's all belly and jaw, a mouth that is practically disconnected and airborne. Look, I'm going to give you the majority of my final thoughts right here and now, and if you don't like it, tough, tough is what I say to you. I used the word silly to describe this number just a second ago, and I would use that word to describe 1776 in toto. 1776 is a silly musical. It's a painfully light satirical comedy that occasionally and reluctantly gestures toward heavier drama. I have no problem with that. 1776 is not the introspective and self-serious study of American history many would seek, which is probably why a lot of critics found the 2022 Broadway revival so frustrating. Sherman Edwards' songs do not bloom under the harsh light of modern day. 
They shrivel up because they can't speak to most of what we're going through in the here and now. They can to a certain extent, but not in every respect. They ain't that smart. They ain't that curious. 1776 is not hair. Even numbers like Mama Looks Sharp and Molasses to Rum inspire little more than hairy pre-dinner rumination. The show is not interested in holding a mirror up to society, and when you force it to hold on to that mirror, it topples over instantly. Should we blame the show when that happens? No! I do not need 1776 to break its back in some attempt to address every contemporary American ill. We should be writing and producing new plays and musicals that take on that work. Let Mr. Lee say Lee a lot and leave it at that. Do not get it twisted, by the way. My skepticism of the 2022 revival, a production I have not seen, we must remember, big grain of salt there, has nothing to do, my skepticism has nothing to do with its casting of female trans and non-binary actors. They went and made 1776 woke. That ain't it, kid. That ain't it, kid. We're not saying that. Open that door as wide as it will go, I say. Just don't be surprised when 1776 can't meet you in the middle as far as your dramaturgical needs may be concerned. This is schoolhouse rock for adults, not the John Adams HBO miniseries. Hell, Hamilton is certainly more self-serious, but, I mean, I, Hamilton is schoolhouse rock for adults. And when I said 1776 is not hair, keep in mind, hair is not hair. Talk amongst yourselves. The Lees of Old Virginia and But Mr. Adams are separated by scene three of the libretto, which is nearly 40 minutes long and completely non-musical. No one sings or plays a note for over half an hour, a world record distinction within the musical theater canon. Scene three was so long, in fact, that musicians were allowed to leave the pit for the first time in Broadway history. Get that. Go. Be free. Eat a book. Read a sandwich. These precious minutes belong to you. Mr. Sherman, I say you should write it. You are never controversial as it were. That is true. Whereas if I'm the one to do it, They'll run their quill pens through it. I'm obnoxious and disliked, you know that, sir. Yes, I do. Then I say you should write it, Roger. Yes, you. Good heavens, no. Yes, you, Roger Sherman. You, but, you, but, you. But, Mr. Adams, but Mr. Adams, I cannot write with any style of proper etiquette. I don't know a participle from a predicate. I am just a simple cobbler from Connecticut. Connecticut, Connecticut, a simple Well, Mr. Jefferson. Mr. Adams. Mr. Jefferson! Mr. Adams, I have not seen my wife for the past six months. I beg of you, Mr. And we Adams. solemnly declare that we will preserve our liberties, being with one mind, resolved to die free men rather than to live slaves. Thomas Jefferson, on the necessity of taking up arms, 1775, magnificent. You write ten times better than any man in Congress, including me. 
For a man of only 33 years, you have a happy talent of composition and remarkable felicity of expression. Now then, sir, will you be a patriot or a lover? Lover. No! But I burn, Mr. A. So do I, Mr. J. You? You do? John! Who'd have thought it? Mr. Jefferson, dear Mr. Jefferson, I'm only 41, I still have my virility. And I can romp through Cupid's Grove with great agility. But life is more than sexual combustibility. Combustibility! Mr. Adams, damn you, Mr. Adams. You're obnoxious and disliked, that cannot be denied. Once again, you stand between me and my lovely bride. bride. Oh, Mr. Adams, you are driving me to few quick bite quibby observations on the subject of the number you just heard which is known as but mr adams i'll start here if roger sherman is nothing more than a simple cobbler oh me no i'm a simple cobbler with zero aptitude for writing how does he know about predicates and participles i'll tell you he's a fucking liar He's a fucking liar. I think Roger Sherman could have written that declaration. He's hiding behind a very poorly produced smokescreen. Fuck off, Roger Sherman. You're a liar. As Robert Livingston, Daniel Marcus's delivery of Not Me, Johnny on the 1997 Broadway Revival cast album is nothing less than a Jimmy Durante impression by way of Uncle Joey. We're not going to find that audio. Just, just know that when Robert Livingston says Not Me, Johnny, he says it as Not Me, Johnny. Ha 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 cha cha cha. Not me, Johnny. It's really fucking weird. John Adams paraphrased. Oh, I love this moment when he says to <laughs> he says to Thomas Jefferson, "Look, I know you want to see your wife. <laughs> you want to have sex with your wife. Look, I miss my wife. I want to have sex with my wife." And all of the men in the room say, "What? What? What are you talking about? You fuck? <laughs> what? What?" We, we never, we don't think of you as a sexual being. This is making us very uncomfortable. And we were, we are flummoxed. You have sex? <laughs> and John Adams, this poor man, has to say, Ah, uh, excuse me. Thank you very brunch. I may be 41, but I still know how to fuck. So fucking fuck you. Thomas Jefferson, I will kill you. I will kill you dead. Do you understand? You better write this fucking Declaration of Independence or I will, oh, my tiny fists will strike you several times. The Founding Fathers are singing about busting nuts, by the way, and uh, bustability, bustability. <laughs> but Mr. Adams basically rules. I mean, come on already. It's demented. They're talking about busting nuts. 1776 knows it has very little to say about anything, while shows like Pacific Overtures, for example, think they have a lot to say about almost nothing at all. 
And you can take that wild statement to the bank. Transylvania! Transylvania! He wants to suck your blood! That's been on my mind lately. Thought I'd share that with you! I bring up this point a lot when I when I really admire a woman's performance on an album. Uh, but I'm, I'm just going to say this. You've heard me say something like this in the past. I'm just beating an old drum. If I identified as a heterosexual, which, ha! What a, what a concept. Or uh, if I identified as heterosexual, or uh, whatever Thomas Jefferson may have may have identified as in modern parlance. I'm convinced most of these bewigged daddy dandies were bisexual. I would play the violin for Betty Buckley's Martha Jefferson to the best of my ability. Oh, baby. That voice of hers is 10 acres of blush pink tulips on a warm Easter morning. We would all fight to keep a gal like Betty. Oh, Betty, Martha, Betty, Martha. Oh, by our side, and there's no use denying it. He plays the violin. This number sounds a hell of a lot like I'll Know from Guys and Dolls. Specifically, just this one part, really. When Martha sings, Say I died, loving bride, loving wife, loving life, it evokes Sarah Brown, does it not? And I'll stop, and I'll stare at that face in the throng. Oh, is that me? In the throng. Oh, was that me? Oh, don't make me sing. Don't make me sing. Mr. Hancock, you're a man of property, one of us. Why don't you join us in our minuet? Why you persist on dancing with Mr. Adams? Good Lord, sir, you don't even like him. That is true. He annoys me quite a lot. But still, I'd rather trot to Mr. Adams' new gavotte. But why, sir? For personal glory, for a place in history? Be careful, sir. History will brand Mr. Adams and his followers as traitors. Traitors, Mr. Dickinson? To what? The British crown or the British half-crown? <laughs> Fortunately, there are not enough men of property in America to dictate policy. Uh, perhaps not. But don't forget that most men with nothing would rather protect the possibility of becoming rich than face the reality of being poor. And that is why they will follow us to the right.
a completely unmemorable piece of music, but cool, cool, considerate men does contain this chilling line from the libretto. I love this piece of dialogue from the character Mr. Dickinson. Dickinson says, quote, Don't forget that most men with nothing would rather protect the possibility of becoming rich than face the reality of being poor. And that is why they will follow us. To the right, ever to the right, never to the left, forever to the right, Quote, I know I refer to 1776 as a silly show, but when it does bother to get off its ass and aim for a target, you can be sure it will not miss. What could be more relevant to every generation of Americans than the image of conservatives who wish to poison our minds and dominate us all for all of eternity? until our bodies give out, until the sun implodes in an act of cosmic mercy. Fuck Republicans, you should know this by now. This show ain't for you. Stop listening, unsubscribe. Oh, go away, you peddlers, you liars, you wannabe victims. Eat my ass. Hello, welcome to the musical man. That's the exit. much. Mama Look Sharp is not silly. Can we agree on that at least? No, not silly. Mama Look Sharp is a sharp twist of the neck and a headlong dive into cave gray melancholy. There is not a single member of Congress who knows this courier by name because they are too busy singing about eggs. Hey, how'd it go over there, kid? Uh, bad. All of my friends died. I'm 18. Oh, sounds rough. Do you think our national bird should be a turkey, a dove, or an eagle? Andrew McNair, the custodian of the Congress, puts it best when admonishing his associate, Monsieur Leather Apron. Andrew McNair says, You don't have to join up. You're in Congress. You don't see them rushing off to get killed, do you? But they're sure great for sending others, I can tell you that. Oh, there is no way some militant prick wasn't screaming about that line back in 69, right? Some snub-nosed, buzz-cut, pissy diaper baby flying off the handle on the drive home. War ain't supposed to be teacups and dandelions. Man up, follow orders, and for God's sake, change my diaper. 
I'm balls deep in piss, or something along those lines. See, this is the sort of airy pre-dinner rumination I was talking about. It ain't deep, but it's what I got. It's what I got for you. Molasses to rum to slay. Molasses and rum and slaves. Who sailed the ships of the Boston, laden with Bibles and rum? Who drinks a toast to the Ivory Coast? Pale Africa, the slavers have come. New England with Bibles. It's off with the rum and the Bibles. Take on the slaves, clink, clink. Then a hail and farewell to the smell of the African coast. Molasses to rum to slaves. Tisn't morals, tis money that saves. We dance to the sound of a profitable pound in molasses and rum and slaves. Who sail the ships out of Guinea laden with Bibles and slaves? Tis Boston can boast to the West Indies coast. Jamaica, we brung what he craves. Antigua Barbados. We've run Bibles and slaves. Gentlemen, you mustn't think our northern friends merely see our black slaves as figures on a ledger. Oh, no, sir. They see them as figures on the block. Watch the faces at the auctions, gentlemen. White faces on African wharves them in the ships, cram them in the ships, stuff them in the ships. Hurry, gentlemen, let the auction begin! Molasses to rum, oh, big song, big song in the musical theater canon, yes, right, everyone knows Molasses to rum, it's arguably the most famous song from 1776, I like to think that the song boils down to everyone's a little bit racist, it's true, but everyone is just about as racist as you, Uh, yeah, like, (laughs) yeah, what a great, I I can really take that home with me, thank you, thank you, thank you, Mr. Rulledge. Yeah, yeah, we're all complicit, which means our policies should never change, and black people should remain enslaved forevermore, right, Mr. Rutledge? You hate corporations, yet you own an iPhone. You order you order things from Amazon. How interesting. Eat my ass. It's not especially... I don't find that to be very compelling. Why do I... Why do I... Why? Why do I always vaguely assume this song is an anti 
slavery song? I listened to three different versions over the last week, and I still make that assumption. Why? Am I alone in this? I've seen the movie. I'm familiar with this show. But are, are you like me? Do you always vaguely think like, oh, yeah, 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 molasses to rum? The, uh, the song that a, a character sings uh, to, to abolish slavery. They, they want to get rid of it, right? No, not at all. This may be my Dear Evan Hansen is about a gay kid who gets bullied delusion. It's my Mandela dimension that I'm living within, and y- you gotta bear with me, okay? <laughs> Thank you. Mr. Secretary, is the declaration ready to be signed? It is. Very well. Call the roll. New Hampshire, Dr. Josiah Bartlett. Massachusetts, Mr. John Adams. Rhode Island, Mr. Stephen Hopkins. Connecticut, Mr. Roger Sherman. New York, Mr. Lewis Morris. New Jersey, the Reverend Jonathan Witherspoon. Pennsylvania, Dr. Benjamin Franklin. Delaware, Mr. Caesar Rodney. Maryland, Mr. Samuel Chase. Virginia, Mr. Thomas Jefferson. North Carolina, Mr. Joseph Hughes. South Carolina, Mr. Edward Bradley. Georgia, And so we come to the finale of 1776, which features the sound of the Liberty Bell. Ah! It scares the crap out of me is what it does. That sound communicates one thing to me personally. Something bad is happening in this room that should be stopped. And something far worse is on its way. That being the next 200 plus years of American history. But do we feel, do we feel we've earned this disquieting final note? The, the moment wants to be, ooh, it's so unsettling, it's so dramatic and loud. Have we earned that? It would feel more at home in a show that took a greater interest in its darker side from the outset, but 1776 ain't about that life. And so the finale is, it's loud, sure, and spooky, certainly, but any effect it has on us as theatergoers doesn't last long. Ah, the ringing. It's so loud. I'm scared. Is something bad happening? Or about to happen? Oh, good. It's done. Curtain down. Bows. I mean, it's not... <laughs> it doesn't exactly stick to the ribs. It's not very nourishing, is it? No. Now, that's all I have to say regarding the score of 1776. We will now hear from our fine, fine sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. You want to know something? I always wanted my name in the paper. Before Amos, I used to date this uh, well-to-do, ugly bootlegger. He used to like to take me out and show me off. 
Ugly guys like to do that. Once it's said in the paper, Gangland's Al Capelli seen at Shea Vito with cute red-headed Corrine. That was me. <laughs> I clipped it out and saved it. Now look, Roxy rocks Chicago. Look, I'm gonna tell you the truth. Not that the truth really matters, but I'm gonna tell you anyway. The thing is, see, I'm older than I ever intended to be. All my life, I wanted to be a barista. Oh, yeah. Have my own cafe, serve piping hot five, six, seven, eight coffee, but no, 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 no. They always turned me down. It was one big world full of no. Life. Then Amos came along, a sweet, safe Amos who never says no. You know, some guys are like mirrors, and when I catch myself in Amos's face, I'm always a kid. You could love a guy like that. Look, I gotta tell you, and uh, I hope this ain't too crude, in the bed department, Amos was zero. I mean, when we went to bed, he made love to me. Like he was fixing an espresso machine or something. I love you, I love you. You want some sugar with that cream? Anyway, to make a long story short, I started fooling around. Then I started screwing around, which is fooling around without dinner. <laughs> ah, ah. I gave up the cafe idea because after all those years, well, you, you sort of figure opportunity just passed you by. Oh, but it ain't. Oh, no, 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 it ain't. <laughs> if this Flint guy gets me off, and with all this publicity, I could still become a barista. I could still have my own little cafe. Now I got me a world full of yes. Five, six, seven, eight coffee. I, I gotta pay! Final thoughts regarding 1776. Dopey? Yes. Dramatically inert and almost entirely non-inquisitive? Sure. An otherwise smooth concoction if taken with a major grain of salt? Second time I've used that phrase, darn tootin'. But seriously, the pins and saltpeter stuff, snoozomania 5000. Oh, and if you noticed any inconsistencies in this week's commentary, he said this, but then later he said that, I want to assure you that no, you did not. I am lucid and unwavering at all times. I am perfect. In 1969, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was, of course, 1776. And the additional nominees were Hair, Promises, Promises, and Zorba. Are we turning this apple cart over, or are we allowing it to mosey onward? Ah, uh, well, we're turning it over. That's what we're doing. Apples for everyone. Promises, Promises is the winner of the 1969 Tony Award for Best Musical in my book. Remember when I said 1776 isn't hair and that hair isn't even hair? Oh, God, I'm good. It is now time for me to rank 1776 against all of the other shows we've talked about here on the podcast. 
As a reminder, if you want to take a look at this ranking of ours, go to twitter.com slash musicalmanpod. You will access our link tree via that platform. You'll find a link to our spreadsheet, the second tab of which provides all of the ranking info your heart could ever desire. I am placing 1776 at number 60 between Side by Side by Sondheim at number 59 and Once at number 61. Ah, that's where it is for now. Who knows? It may change. Who knows? Show-related ephemera. I have some fun ephemera for you this time around. Here are three commercials I found featuring the one and only William Daniels. The first is a 1986 Hughes Market ad. That will be followed by a 1987 Nissan Top Ramen commercial, which is just a little bit politically incorrect. And the third and final ad in this trio is the 19. 1991 Parquet Gold ad with William Daniels' wife, Bonnie Bartlett. You might recognize her from Boy Meets World as well because she played the dean in the college seasons of Boy Meets World. So let's hear those ads now, if you don't mind. I find the beef here at Hughes good. Undeniably good. No, it's not. I beg your pardon? The beef at Hughes is choice. And that's good. No, see, USDA choice is a better grade than USDA good. Thank you. You're welcome. You know, unlike other markets, Hughes only picks choice grade beef. Well, I know that Hughes' prices are good. Ground beef, 67 cents a pound, and a one-pound package of Oscar Mayer meat wieners, 99 cents. These Hughes guys are almost as picky as I am. Japanese traditions date back thousands of years. Some have changed slightly. Some have even made it to America. Like the authentic taste of Nissen's Top Ramen. An original recipe of succulent noodles in a broth flavored with oriental spices. And for a full delicious meal, just add meat and vegetables. So if you want traditional Japanese noodles, but don't want to spend centuries at the stove, use your noodle and try Top Ramen. From Nissen. Oh, for crying out loud, this isn't Fleischmann's. Right, it's new parquet gold spread and it's delicious. If I want a delicious, I'd eat butter. Fleischmann's is low in saturated fat. Well, parquet gold is even lower in saturated fat and tastes more like butter than Fleischmann's margarine. You know oh, very... Oh, pipe down and try it. Well? Okay, it tastes more like butter. Parquet gold. Oh, for crying out loud. New parquet gold spread, lower in saturated fat than Fleischmann's margarine, and it tastes more like... Butter. Wonderful, and now I would like to set up another clip from that fantastic show, Liberty's Kids. You might remember us referencing this show during our coverage of Hamilton. This clip you're about to hear is from Season 1, Episode 14, the first 4th of July, which aired September 18th, 2002. It features Walter Cronkite as Benjamin Franklin, Billy Crystal as John Adams, and Ben Stiller as Thomas Jefferson. Sure, okay. I only know Mr. Cronkite from his work as Captain New Eyes in We're Back, A Dinosaur's Story. If he's done anything else, I don't know about it. In this familiar scene, Ben Franklin and John Adams convince Thomas Jefferson to write the Declaration of Independence, and they all seem really jazzed about it. So it is our job to come up with a written statement of independence on which Congress is to vote. So you'd better start working on it, John. Not me, Franklin. My shrill insistence and lack of tact have made me too obnoxious. If the others know it's my hand on the pen, they'll tear it to shreds. Whom do you propose to write it? You, Dr. Franklin. You are the most famous writer on the continent. I pass. I write for the amusement of my readers and myself. I will not write something only to have a Congress rewrite it. 
What about Roger Sherman or Robert Livingston? They're on the committee as well. They can barely write their names. Jefferson, you have a fine mind and a gift for language. Me? You. It will be an honor to turn what talents I have to this cause. I only hope I prove worthy. Where's Mr. Jefferson going in such a hurry? He's got a lot of writing to do. I know every animated series operates on a budget, but Man Alive, if you actually sat down to watch Liberty's Kids, hey yo, the Liberty's Kids animation, hey yo, is practically begging its viewers to go outside and play. I love the character of Sarah in this show. Gotta love Sarah, the only female kid of Liberty, because she is a she's a fussy loyalist who will not stop complaining while the boys get to be gung-ho forward-thinking patriots. Oh, I don't like the idea of independence. Be quiet, Sarah! Yeah, great dynamic. Really, really progressive. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the Rain number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, The Bible by Mr. X. Everyone ready? Then away we go! subject of our main feed coverage is a 1962 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It ran for 719 performances, and here's a little hint for those who might be wondering what the title of the show is. It's Carnival. Maybe that wasn't a great hint. I don't know. It's Carnival with an exclamation point. Oh, a, a bit of trivia for you in advance of this coverage. The, the exclamation point was removed later on because those behind the show's production felt the exclamation point was false advertising. Uh, it sold a show that they did not that they did not believe in. Okay, it's a gentle show. It's Carnival, not Carnival. Carnival, not carnival, okay? Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout, every nickel and dime, is donated to the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. If you donate $1 a month, you get Monday early access to all of our main feed episodes. You get a verbal shout-out each and every week here on the main feed. Thank you for donating at least $1 a month. Caroline, Helena, Greg, Andy, Elizabeth, Aaron, Jason, Jack, Vitor, Sydney, Katie, Elena, Anton, Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marcus, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. As a $1 a month tier patron, you also get 19 bonus episodes. What are those episodes about? Well, we talk about the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the trailer for the film Cats, The Little Mermaid Live, a full review of the film Cats, Emma at 
Chicago Shakespeare Theater, Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, Hamilton via Disney+, Plus. Documentary Now, Original Cast Album, Co-op, John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, Arlo the Alligator Boy, the trailer for West Side Story 2021, Vivo, the Tony Awards present Broadway's Back, Diana, Annie Live, The Notebook at Chicago Shakespeare Theater, and Beauty and the Beast, a 30th celebration. You get season one, that's 12 episodes of Radio Boy, a series for which I check in with myself via the non-musical theater songs that make me feel more like myself, and you get all 16 episodes in our now-complete M3 The Movie Musical Man series, for which we watch and discuss trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by common themes. Here is a complete complete list of all 48 movies we cover across those 16 episodes. The Wizard of Oz, Singing in the Rain, The Umbrellas of Shabur, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, The Last Five Years, Stuck, The Pirate, The Pirate Movie, Muppet, Treasure Island, Gay Paris, Anastasia, Ugly Dolls, Scrooge, Mrs. Santa Claus, Anna and the Apocalypse, Phantom of the Paradise, Voyage of the Rock Aliens, Camp Rock, Star, The Greatest Showman, Rocket Man, Mary Poppins, The Happiest Millionaire, Charlotte's Web, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Moulin Rouge, Hello Again, Black Orpheus, Lagan, Once Upon a Time in India, Eight Women, Starstruck, Sing Street, Valley Girl, The Sliver and the Rose, Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella from 1997, Cinderella from 2021, The Harvey Girls, Calamity Jane, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, The Court Jester, Camelot, Quest for Camelot, Give a Girl a Break, Athena, Hit the Deck, Funny Lady, Grease 2, and Love Never Dies. <sighs> $3 a month will get you everything I've already described, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. You get to choose who you want to hear from, and you will get that personalized musical shout-out. It's a great feature. Ooh, what a benefit that... Ooh, what a benefit that is. You get all 10 episodes in our high school musical podcast, which is known as Wildcats Everywhere, as well as a special one-off all about Julie and the Phantoms. Now, coming March of 2023, we have TV VIP. That is a special series for this $3 a month tier. It is dedicated to TV musicals. Yes, TV series that are themselves musicals. Now, I had initially promised an eight-episode series, but I believe that number is going to change. It's not going to get smaller. No, I believe it will actually wind up being nine, if not ten episodes. So, please consider getting into that $3 a month tier. Do it. But what about our $5 a month tier? Well, you get everything I've already described, plus you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss on the podcast, so long as that show was nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical, and as long as it's not a show we've already talked about. I can't do that. I can't go back. No. Ever forward. Ever forward. You get all 24 episodes of seasons one and two of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera, as well as all 14 episodes in our Broadway in Chicago review series, and... Volumes 1 through 5 of Shout About It, a collection of 5678 coffee ads and musical shoutouts from the first 125 episodes of the show. Finally, in our $10 a month tier, you get everything I've already described, plus exclusive announcements regarding future subjects of the main feed. We just did a brand new announcement over on Patreon. The patrons know the next 10 shows. They already knew Carnival was coming down the pike. 
they know what's coming up. So if you want to be in the know, oh, on the dole, on the dole, no, uh, just become a $10 a month patron. You'll also get season one, that's 12 episodes of The Snub Club, a show dedicated to shows that were not nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. They were snubbed, as well as 12 episodes of Turn It Off, a series dedicated to off-Broadway musicals. Yes, of course. If you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, please take a moment to write a five-star review. We have not received a five-star review on Apple via, no, 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 via the Apple Podcast page. It's been very, very long, a long time since we've gotten a review. I want one. Please, I want a brand new one. Tell me. Tell me you love the show. Give it five stars. You can stream the show via Spotify, Stitcher, Audible, or Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thanks as always to Patty and Benny in the booth. I love Patty and Benny. Happy birthday again to you, Patty. Alex Green, thank you for our beautiful logo, and thank you to Zach Little for our fabulous intro and outro music. Oh, well, you know what that sound means? Yes, just when the fun is starting comes... The time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Wiedersehen, and good night. to the masses. For the first time in history, the common man had access to the same information that used to be available only to the privileged few. And who would you like me to make this out to, my darling? Gentlemen, <laughs> might I interrupt your press junket? There's some learning going on here. Maybe you feel it's important to learn that Gutenberg invented the printing press, but uh, pop culture and these pouty lips have made me a star. <laughs> I'm gonna to try to put this as kindly as possible. The show has turned into a circus, and you three are driving the tiny car. <laughs> Mr. Feeney, I, I mean, I, I'm proud that I knew that Krusty the Clown was the son of a rabbi. Can I answer a real question, Mr. Feeney? About the tigress and the Euphrates. Miss Lawrence, I would never deny you your moment in the sun. But knowledge fever no longer has much to do with the kind of knowledge I would want you to absorb. Mr. Feeney, look, well, the show's proving that we're absorbing the right type of knowledge, right? I mean, that's why we're the champions. Champions of what, Mr. Matthews? Of a generation whose verbal and mathematical skills have sunk so low when you have the highest level of technology at your fingertips? Gutenberg's generation thirsted for a new book every six months. Your generation gets a new web page every six seconds. And how do you use this technology? To beat King Cooper and save the princess. Shame on you. <laughs>
You deserve what you get. Sit down. Stay where you are. For the first time, I choose to walk out on you. <laughs>